Hey gang, Tom Mullen here. Do you have a child who spends more time than you'd like in front of screens consuming low quality content? Well, you can turn that screen time into something fun and worthwhile. I'm talking about mini coders, an educational game-based platform including companion apps made for kids with video tutorials, virtual assistant, and games where kids learn coding skills while they play in the Roblox metaverse, all under the safety and guidance of a virtual assistant and in-game tutors. MiniCoders is perfect for homeschooled, unschooled, or traditionally schooled children alike and helps them build 21st century skills and have a ball doing so. Right now, you can try out MiniCoders with no obligation by registering for a free trial at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders. That's M-I-N-I-C-O-D-E-R-S. Again, just visit TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders and start your free trial today. Every revolution starts in the minds of the people. Arm yourself for the war of ideas. Take back your life. Take back your liberty. Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Today, I wanted to talk a little bit about the sanctions that uh, the United States and its NATO partners are and are not imposing upon Russia over its invasion of Ukraine and the whirlwind of misinformation. I guess I'll use that word to keep my family-friendly status as far as language on the podcast. It's not the first word that came to mind, but the misinformation all over the place about what's going on here, what effect these sanctions are really going to have, who they're going to hurt and who they're not going to hurt. And of course, sanctions are something that we've talked about for a long time within the libertarian community uh, about you know who really gets hurt by them the us government had sanctions on iraq for about a decade starting in the 1990s until the early 2000s before it decided to invade iraq over what we now know was basically an excuse the bush administration was talking about invading iraq Long before 9-11, the first cabinet meeting that George Bush had that was discussed as reported by his treasury secretary at the time, the people who suffered under these sanctions it was not Saddam Hussein. His life did not change because of the sanctions that the United States put on Iraq. It was the Iraqi people. And with the now infamous statement made by Madeleine Albright that the death of perhaps 500,000 Iraqi children was worth it to supposedly pressure Saddam Hussein into doing something different than he otherwise would have done, which, of course, he didn't. And eventually, the United States invaded that country and destroyed it, destroyed its infrastructure, created hundreds of thousands of civilian casualties and and millions of refugees. That's who suffered from the sanctions on Iraq back in, in the 1990s and early 2000s. And of course, the people who are going to suffer 
from the sanctions on Russia are the Russian people, not Vladimir Putin. He won't be driving any less. He won't be turning his thermostat down in the winter or up in the summer. It's going to be the Russian people who suffer and the American people who suffer. And that's all to the extent that these sanctions really are going to make a difference. And that's why I wanted to talk a little bit today about the reality of how oil is really traded, gasoline prices really are determined, because a lot of what people believe just isn't true. A lot of what Joe Biden is selling is this simplistic idea of the way the world economy works that appeals to everyone's emotions. And if you notice, almost everybody's opinions are informed by their emotions these days. And it's been that way for quite a long time. That's not a healthy place to be for a society, but that's probably a subject for another day. But when we get down to oil, you have to realize that oil is a commodity that's exchanged on a world market. It's traded on big exchanges And what these sanctions really do is say, okay, if that oil was produced in Russia, let's say you can't deliver it to the United States. So it's a sanction actually on American importers. They're not allowed to take delivery of oil that came from Russia. And this is what the case has been for Venezuela. Now, it's not like it's reduced the world supply of oil. That's not what's forcing the price up. It merely reduces the supply available to the countries participating in the sanctions. So who does that hurt? It hurts the people of those countries. So there was an interesting article on oilprice.com, and the headline is, China plans to take advantage of the big oil exodus from Russia. So If you've got a a lot of countries that won't buy Russian oil, now that, of course, does hurt the Russian oil exporters because they have less people competing for their oil, but it's still going to go somewhere and sounds like it's going to go to China. And one of the things this article says is, it was only a matter of time, really. Nature abhors a vacuum and so does business. Chinese business, in addition to this, is quite pragmatic, unlike its Western counterparts and competitors. So once BP, Shell, and pretty much everyone but French Total Energies left Russia in the wake of the Ukraine crisis, Chinese energy firms owned by the government started considering moving in. According to Bloomberg sources, the government in Beijing is talking to four state-owned entities about the acquisition of stakes in Russian oil and metals companies. The entities include China National Petroleum Corps, or CNPC, China Petrochemical Corps, or Sinopec, the country's largest refiner, as well as Aluminum Corps and China Min Metals Group. Talks, the report said, were also going on between China and Russian companies, although it was too early to say whether they would end with deals. The chances of deals, however, are pretty good. It is one of the clearest examples of mutual benefits. China needs raw materials to grow. Russia has the raw materials and needs money. So basically, China is going to be able to buy oil cheaper 
because there's less people competing for Russian oil, while the United States and all the countries participating in the sanctions are going to uh, have to pay more because their supply has been diminished artificially by their governments. And one of the things to, to give a little perspective on this, I just wanted to point out was who buys oil on the world market as far as countries. Now, again, you know, I just want to remind everybody, it's not like President Biden or President Xi of China makes oil purchases, okay? It's all a matter of what they allow their private sector companies to do. But just to give you some perspective on this, when you look at the top 10 consumers of oil by country, the United States is number one at 19.6 million barrels of oil per day. They make up 20% of all oil consumption. Who do you think is number two? Well, of course, the second largest economy, China, which consumes just under 13 million barrels of oil per day. And once you get away from the United States and China, it takes the next 13 countries combined to consume as much as those two countries, the United States and China, consume. So number one, the United States at 19.5 million barrels, China at 12.7 million barrels, and the third largest consumer is India, who's also not going to be participating in this at 4.4 million barrels per day. Number four is Japan at 4 million. Number five is Russia itself at 3.6 million. They obviously won't be participating in an embargo on themselves. Number six is Saudi Arabia at 3.3 million barrels a day, whom President Biden cannot get on the phone. And that's another interesting side story to this whole fiasco. Number seven is Brazil, also not going to participate. Number eight is South Korea at 2.6. Number nine is Canada at 2.4 million barrels per day. And number 10 is Germany, also not participating in the sanctions on Russian oil. And when Joe Biden made his speech announcing that the U.S. was going to boycott Russian oil, he made an excuse for our European partners. Not all of them can afford to do this. So they're getting a pass on these sanctions. So when you think about the list of countries I just named, and, and after number 10, it continues to decrease as far as the amount of oil consumed. And depending on how many of the next 10 countries, Iran, France, Spain, Thailand, Singapore, decide to participate, that will have a more or less effect on Russian oil. But basically what it does to the Russian exporters is it makes them sell their oil cheaper, which does hurt them. Like I said, it doesn't hurt Vladimir Putin to a certain extent over the long term, depending on how long these sanctions last, Russian oil companies would possibly go out of business and world oil supply would go down. Just remember that when the world oil supply goes down, or in this case, what really happens in the short term is its exchange is made less efficient by governments. It just hurts everybody overall. But of course, the pain is focused more on Russia and the United States because the United States will suffer significantly as well because it is paying a higher price for crude oil based on the fact that it's bidding against a smaller supply. And Russia is something like 11% 
of the world's oil production. Although their economy is very small, it's largely based on natural resources and not just oil. They export a whole bunch of other things that the United States and other first world countries need. So it's not really clear that the supposed good guys are going to win this. And as far as who the good guys are, that's another whole story as well. I want to focus on the economics of this and just say it's a lot more complicated than Joe Biden makes it seem and people like Elizabeth Warren. And it's unclear to me you know, how much they're lying and how much they really just don't understand economics. That's another concern with all politicians. Now, one of the things Joe Biden said he was going to do to try to, quote, ease the pain. So it's funny that like the Fed, the Fed implicitly acknowledges that what they do causes prices to rise, but they never come right out and say, we printed this $2 trillion over six months And that's why the prices went up. You'll never hear them say that. They're always laying off the blame on somebody else. And implicit in Joe Biden's comments, which are even a little more honest than what the Fed usually will say, is that this is going to cause pain here in the United States. So he's acknowledging that what he's doing is going to make it harder on average Americans who can't afford to pay four, five, seven, who knows how high the price of gasoline may go based on this completely artificial condition created by the Biden administration and in terms of what gasoline costs uh, American consumers. So he's going to release some more barrels of oil from the strategic oil reserve, which shouldn't really even exist, to be honest with you. But if you buy into this whole, oh my gosh, we have to have this reserve in case there's a big war and you know people cut us off. Something, by the way, you can see that is not occurring <laughs> when supposedly the whole civilized world is against Russia. No one has cut them off, really. Of course, they're a big net exporter. But he's going to release some more oil from that reserve. And of course, this is going to have a very limited effect on the world supply on that 19 million barrels per day that the United States consumes. But the second part of it that he's been hinting at for quite a while is price controls. While all this is going on, left-wing politicians are stirring up resentment against the people who sell oil and gasoline as if rising prices have something to do with their greed. Supposedly, they just become greedy all of the sudden when their input prices increase. It has nothing to do with, with input prices. And suddenly, competition no longer exists as a thing in the marketplace, as if once the supply of oil is reduced and therefore the price of oil goes up, companies are just being greedy if their prices go up. They no longer compete with each other. It really begs the question, why don't they just charge higher prices all the time? Why do they wait for the supply to be reduced before prices go up? So it really makes no sense whatsoever that higher prices are somehow connected to greed. Companies are always competing with each other. They always want to make as much money as possible. And the reason that they don't just charge twice as much as they charge under normal circumstances is competition. And that competition still exists 
when the government imposes a sanction or otherwise artificially limits the supply? And one answer is, well, they all collude together to raise prices when there's some kind of a shock. Well, then why don't they all collude together when there isn't a shock? If they can do that during sanctions, they can certainly do it when there were no sanctions. Why don't they just collude together? None of this makes any sense. So I'm just trying to help you see through some of the things that politicians do to cover up for the fact that they create all of this hardship. And in a minute, I want to talk about the fact that oil prices had been going up long before this war started in Ukraine. And it's not that that didn't affect the price of oil or that the sanctions didn't uh, affect or won't affect the price of oil, but it's having a marginal effect. It's not the underlying cause that oil prices have been rising for two years. Let's take a short break for this important message. Friends, if you like to read books as much as I do, there comes a time when you realize you just won't ever find the time to read every book you're interested in. Well, I have great news. Blinkist offers the key ideas from nonfiction bestsellers in as little as 15 minutes. For most books and their extensive library, you can choose to read or listen to Blinks, which summarize the main ideas and allow you to absorb whole books in the time it takes to run your daily errands or commute to work. Not only does Blinkist allow you to glean the information you need from books you don't have time to read, it helps you to decide which ones to spend time reading and get more details. You can try out Blinkist for free and get 20% off your first year by going to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. That's TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist. Start your free trial and get 20% off today. And now let's get back to the show. On the answer, then you quietly save the day. You were right, Mr. Spock, about everything you said. We humans just are logical, too crazy in the head. So I also wanted to talk about who are these price controls going to be imposed upon? Are they going to be imposed upon refineries and what they sell gasoline to their customers? Are they going to be imposed upon retail gas stations? The most likely thing that Joe Biden would do would be to say that gas stations can't sell gas above a certain price per gallon. And this is one of the things you have to realize, and I see this on social media all the time, people complaining that the gas station is somehow gouging them by charging them more per gallon. This is the person that you should be least angry with, the gas station that you purchase your gasoline to put in your car from makes pennies per gallon on a gallon of gas that they sell to you. Some of them make as little as three to five cents. Some make as much as 10 to 15 cents per gallon. But when gasoline is $4 per gallon, no, it's not that the gas station owner is making very much money. In fact, during periods where the price of oil goes up and therefore the price of the gas they buy and resell to you goes up, their profits actually get thinner. Gas stations mainly make their biggest profits on either doing car repairs, if it's that kind of service station, more likely these days on the in-store purchases you make of bottles of water, candy bars, donuts, whatever you go into the store and buy, 
That's where they make their money. They make very little on gasoline. It's a liter to get you to walk into the store. And you can look this up in many places. It's reported widely, but not all of the anger is focused on them. None of the anger is focused on the source of the problem, which is the government always and everywhere and the central bank, of course, which I consider part of the government. Yes, the Fed is privately owned, but it's a creature of Congress and it's completely controlled by the government. And I wouldn't even call them crony capitalists, the the banks that own the Federal Reserve And anyone who remembers the 1970s, and I was a kid during the 1970s, I do remember the so-called energy crisis back then. And of course, Nixon imposed price controls and what you had were shortages. And there were times when you were not allowed to buy gasoline on certain days where you were only allowed to buy on, let's say, Tuesday, Thursday and Saturday, if your license plate ended in an odd number, you could buy on some days. If it ended on an even number, you can buy on others. I mean, this is the kind of nonsense that occurs. And of course, by putting the price control in, there's a shortage. So it has to be rationed, gasoline. This was a miserable time for Americans. That misery index was at all-time highs. And this misery is completely unnecessary, and it's not going to stop any war in Ukraine. The war is going to go on. So there's an analogy here to tariffs where it's we're going to impose tariffs and supposedly that's going to punish the country that we buy our products from. No, it doesn't. It punishes us. It makes life more expensive. If we were importing sneakers from China and that allowed me to buy them for $60 a pair and then you put a tariff on and now I have to pay $120 a pair of sneakers. Well, that just makes me poor. I don't have that $60 left over to spend on something else and probably hurts some other American company that is actually competitive. So it's it's a little bit the same thing. Price controls on retailers ultimately hurt consumers the most. So the other part of this that I wanted to remind people of is some of the history behind what's going on here or the historical parallels And I wrote an article that was widely shared and posted on the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. They decided to reprint it about Poland and how the position Poland's in with being told by the U.S. government, go ahead and send fighter jets to Russia if you want. You just can't do it through us. There's a historical parallel to this where Poland was encouraged to stand up to Nazi Germany when Nazi Germany was seeking to reannex the city of Danzig to the German Empire or to the Third Reich. And Poland did not want to see this happen. Danzig was not actually part of Poland. After World War I, it was an independent city, and but it was under heavy Polish influence. And certainly the Poles did not want it to rejoin the German Empire and then be under their control. So they were in a dispute with Nazi Germany. They really couldn't beat Nazi Germany in a war, as history showed. But the British came in and gave Poland a guarantee that we'll back you up if you stand up to Adolf Hitler. But then what happened was that because of that guarantee... Poland did not 
allow Germany to annex Danzig, which would have been a bad outcome. And Hitler invaded Poland, which was a worse outcome. So they didn't have a choice between good and bad. They had a choice between bad and worse. And they chose the worse outcome because they had this promise from England that uh, England would back them up. Of course, England was in no position to back them up. They had disarmed after World War I, as had most of the Allies, and they ended up reneging on that promise. And Poland was invaded by Germany and occupied, eventually invaded by Russia and occupied. So they were basically in a state of slavery for the next 52 years, having allowed Germany to annex Danzig would have been the lesser of two evils. And as I go on in the article, Hitler was not looking to invade Western or Southern Europe. He had said that in his book. That probably would have played out as a war between the Soviets and the Nazis. Instead of the whole world against the Nazis, it might have just been the Soviets and the Nazis fighting each other, which would have been a much better outcome because the Soviets, of course, were no wonderful regime either. They were arguably worse than the Nazis. And in any case, having them fight each other was better than empowering the Soviets to take over half of Europe, which was the outcome. So that was one article I wrote. There's a parallel there because I'm wondering why is the United States telling Russia they can send jets to Ukraine, but just don't involve us? If Russia retaliated against Poland... That would invoke the NATO war guarantee unless the United States is planning on reneging on it, just like England reneged on guarantee to Poland back at the beginning of World War II. So are they being set up as the fall guy? Who knows? Or is it just more massive incompetence on the part of the United States government foreign policy establishment? I don't know. But here's the other parallel to World War II. And of course, that's the oil embargo imposed upon Japan. So what happened in the early 1940s that finally resulted in Japan attacking the United States at Pearl Harbor? Two things. Their assets were seized by the Roosevelt administration, assets in America. And an oil embargo was imposed so that Japan could not import oil. And they considered that an existential threat. Whether they're justified or not doesn't matter. It resulted in them attacking Pearl Harbor, foolishly in hindsight, and getting the United States into the war. Now, the reasoning that the Roosevelt administration gave was the humanitarian concern about Japan's activities in China. And the average guy in the street would have a humanitarian concern about the atrocities being committed by Japan in China, what he might not have known without the internet back in 1940 and 1941, was that Japan was encouraged to go into China by none other than Franklin Roosevelt's distant cousin, Teddy Roosevelt, just a few decades earlier yeah, that's right. Teddy Roosevelt was telling Japan, you are the most Western and <laughs> let's be honest, in the parlance of the day, you're the most white <laughs> of the Asian countries. And he actually made statements to this effect, the one that uh, is most like a, a European country, and you should be in charge over there in Asia. Kind of a little pet empire, partner of the United States and European empire. Yeah, Teddy Roosevelt encouraged Japan to go into China. 
a few decades later when his cousin Franklin Roosevelt didn't like the way he was doing it, supposedly, and imposed those sanctions on Japan, which led to the United States getting into the war. Now, a lot of people would argue that Franklin Roosevelt was just looking for a reason to get into the war and knew by goading Japan into a foolish attack that would allow the United States to declare war on Japan and Japan's alliance with Germany would get Germany into the war. And of course, that's what happened. So you be the judge, whether it was the big heart of Franklin Roosevelt or whether he was just trying to get into a war that until the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, most of his country did not want to be involved in. So you can see where the same kind of thing is playing out today. Of course, the average American would have humanitarian concern for the people of Ukraine, not its government. I have no concern for the Ukrainian government, which is a puppet government set up by the United States. And in fact, Zelensky himself, this great hero, he got elected saying that unlike his predecessor, he would seek a resolution to the tensions with the Donbass region, that he would restore good relations with Russia. And then he completely betrayed the large percentage of Russian-speaking Ukrainians who supported him based on that by doing exactly the opposite. He shelled the Donbass region mercilessly in the months leading up to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So I'm not cheering on Putin's invasion but of course, it's a lot more complicated than this. The United States has been trying to turn Ukraine into a weaponized anti-Russia state since at least 2004, the first time they overthrew Ukraine's government, certainly since 2014. Three different presidents, including Trump, who was better overall on foreign policy marginally than Obama and Biden, but he sent weapons to Ukraine. If you remember, that's how he got impeached, was he was accused of holding them up a little for political reasons, but he still sent them. So the United States certainly goaded Russia into this invasion, and now they're imposing sanctions, the same ones that the United States imposed upon Japan back in the early 1940s, seizing their assets and instead of cutting off their oil supply, reducing their ability to sell their own oil. So it's the mirror image of that. Same effect. And it's just a question of how desperate can the United States make things for the Russian people and the Russian economy? Because when their back's against the wall, who knows what they'll do? The less bad news, I'm not going to say the good news, but the less bad news is it looks like Russia has an ability to pivot away from the United States here and, of course, make more of a, a partnership with China, something that's not really in the United States' strategic interest as far as being an empire is concerned. I, I really don't want the United States to be an empire, so I'm not going to lose a lot of sleep over Russia and China getting together. I don't consider them a military threat. The only military threat besides Russia to Ukraine has been the United States during this century. China's been out making deals and growing their economy. And while they're by no means laissez-faire, the reason China has grown during this century is because they're freer than they used to be. Are they free? No. Are they a free market? No. But they're a freer market. And especially economically, 
They're a lot freer than they used to be, and that's why they're ascending economically. And the United States is not a socialist country, and it's not a centrally planned economy, but it's a more socialist country. It's a less free economy. It's a more centrally planned economy than it used to be. And that's why the United States is declining economically. So everything is relative. Being an anarcho-capitalist, of course, I don't want any of these governments to exist. But here in the real world, you've got to look at things relatively. And China has been relatively freer in this century than, of course, they were under Mao. And to a certain extent, Xi's regime is making the mistake of pulling back on that a little bit or regressing a little bit marginally, but to the extent that China becomes any less free, they're going to become economically weaker. To the extent they become more free, they become economically stronger. And that's the rule everywhere. That's why the United States became the strongest economy in the world. Was it ever completely 100% laissez-faire? No, but it was a lot closer before. And of course, it grew a lot faster when it was a freer market. So interesting times ahead. Hopefully we don't all get nuked. That's the number one priority, that we don't have a nuclear war over this. And I don't think that's the likely outcome, but it's a risk. And it's a much higher risk when you're imposing these kinds of economic sanctions, the same kind that got us into World War II on a country that has the largest stockpile of nuclear weapons and may have a military edge all around over the United States, even though their economy is so small. So I hope that sheds some light on a few things and and at least runs some interference on some of the misinformation. Almost nothing that is being put out by the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, NBC, ABC, and even Fox News as far as the war in Ukraine goes or how any of these sanctions are going to play out. Almost none of that is true. And that's really a startling thing to say because I remember a time when I knew I had to filter the news and say, well, there's some bias here. There's a lot of spin here. But now we're just getting information that's categorically false. And it really is a sad state of affairs. On Monday, I'm going to have Mark Crispin Miller, who is an expert on propaganda. He's been teaching a course on it, I think, for at least a decade, if not more. He's an NYU professor who's written books on propaganda, and it's going to be a very interesting conversation. Can't wait to hear what he has to say about the latest, not only war propaganda that's going on with Ukraine, but also the remaining propaganda that's being disseminated about COVID. So I'll see you again on Monday. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Okay, friends, that's going to do it for today. If you haven't already, don't forget to download a free copy of my new ebook, It's the Fed Stupid, at itsthefedstupid.com. And if you like the music you've heard on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can hear more at tommullensings.com. Thanks for listening. The war of ideas has only just begun. Arm yourself with the knowledge you need by heading to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com and subscribing to our email list. And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people.